Chapter number sixty six of the Vicomte de Bragelonne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Vicomte de Bragelonne by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter number sixty six. The Journey. It is perhaps the fiftieth time since the day on which we open this history that this man with a heart of bronze and muscles of steel had left house and friends everything in short to go in search of fortune and death the one that is to say death had constantly retreated before him as if afraid of him the other that is to say fortune for only a month past had really made an alliance with him although he was not a great philosopher after the fashion of either Epicurus or Socrates, he was a powerful spirit, and having knowledge of life, and endowed with great thought, no one is as brave, as adventurous, or as skilful as D'Artagnan, without at the same time being inclined to be a dreamer. He had picked up here and there some scraps of Monsieur de la Rochefoucauld, worthy of being translated into Latin by Mademoiselle de Port-Royale, and he had made a collection en passant in the society of Athos and Aramis of many morsels of Seneca and Cicero, still translated by them and applied to the uses of common life. That contempt of riches which our Gascon had observed as an article of faith during the thirty-five first years of his life had for a long time been considered by him as the first article of the code of bravery. Article first, said he, a man is brave because he has nothing. A man has nothing because he despises riches. Therefore, with these principles, which, as we have said, had regulated the first thirty-five years of his life, D'Artagnan was no sooner possessed of riches than he felt it necessary to ask himself if, in spite of his riches, he were still brave. To this, for any other but D'Artagnan, the events of the Place de Grève might have served as a reply. Many consciences would have been satisfied with them, but D'Artagnan was brave enough to ask himself sincerely and conscientiously if he were brave. Therefore to this. But it appears to me that I drew promptly enough and cut and thrust pretty freely on the Place de Grave to be satisfied of my bravery, D'Artagnan had himself replied. Gently, Clapton, that is not an answer. I was brave that day because they were burning my house and there are a hundred and even a thousand to speak against one, that if those gentlemen of the riots had not formed that unlucky idea, their plan of attack would have been succeeded, or at least it would not have been I who would oppose myself to it. Now, what will be brought against me? I have no house to be burnt in Bretagne. I have no treasure that there can that can be taken from me. No, I have my skin, that precious skin of Monsieur d'Artagnan, which to him is worth more than all the houses and all the treasures of the world, that skin to which I cling about every day, which it is everything considered the binding of the body, which encloses a heart very warm and ready to fight, and consequently to live. Then I do desire to live, and in reality I live much better, more completely, since I have become rich. Who the devil ever said that money spoiled life? Upon my soul it is no such thing. On the contrary, it seems as if I absorbed a double quantity of air and sun. Mon Dieu! What will it be, then, if I double that fortune and 
if, instead of the switch I now hold in my hand, I should ever carry the baton of a maracal. Then I really don't know if there will be from that moment enough air and sun for me. In fact, this is not a dream. Who the devil would oppose it if the king made me a maracal, as his father, King Louis the Eighth, made a duke and constable of Arbelt de Luynes? Am I not as brave and much more intelligent than that imbecile de Vitry? Ah, that's exactly what will prevent my advancement. I have too much wit. Luckily, if there is any justice in this world, fortune owes me many compensations. She owes me certainly a recompense for all I did for Anne of Austria, and an indemnification for all she has done, done for me. Then, at the present, I am very well with the king, and with a king who has the appearance of determining his reign. My God keep him in that illustrious road, for if he is resolved to reign, he will want me, and if he wants me, he will give me what he has promised me, warmth and light, so that I march comparatively now as I marched formerly, from nothing to everything. Only the nothing of today is all former days. There has only this little change taken part in my life. And now let us see. Let us take part of the heart, as I just now was speaking of it. But in truth I only spoke of it from memory. And the Gascon applied his hand to his breast, as if he were t actually seeking the place where his heart were. Ah, wretch, murmured he, smiling with bitterness. Ah, poor mortal species. You hoped for an instant that you had not a heart, and now you find you have one bad courtier as thou art and even one of the most seditious. You have a heart which speaks to you in favor of Monsieur Fouquet. And what is Monsieur Fouquet when the king is in question? A conspirator, a real conspirator, who did not even give himself the trouble to conceal his own conspirator. Therefore, what a weapon would you not have against him, if his good grace and his intelligent had not become scabbard for that weapon? An armed revolt, for, in fact, Monsieur Fouquet had been guilty of an armed revolt. Thus, while the king vaguely suspects Monsieur Fouquet of that rebellion, I know it. I could prove that Monsieur Fouquet had caused the shedding of the blood of His Majesty's subjects. Now then, let us see, knowing all that and holding my tongue, what further would this heart wish in return for a kind action of Monsieur Fouquet's for an advance of fifteen thousand livres, for a diamond with a thousand pistoles, for a smile in which there was as much bitterness as kindness? I save his life. Now then, I suppose, continued the musketeer, that this imbecile of a heart is going to preserve silence, and so being fairly quits with Monsieur Fouquet. Now then, the king becomes my son, and as my heart is quits with Monsieur Fouquet, let him beware who places himself between me and my son. Forward, for His Majesty Louis the Fourteenth. Forward. These reflections were only the impediments which were able to retard the progress of D'Artagnan. These reflections once made, he increased the speed of his horse, but however perfect his horse Zephyr might be, it could not hold out at such a pace forever. The day after his departure from Paris, his mount was left at Chartres, at the house of an old friend D'Artagnan had met with in an hotelier of that city. From that moment, the musketeer traveled on post-horses. Thanks to this mode of locomotion, he traversed the space separating Chartres and Chateaubriand. In the last of these two cities, far enough from the coast to prevent any one guessing that D'Artagnan wished to reach the sea, far enough from Paris to prevent all suspicion of his being a messenger for Louis the Fourteenth, whom D'Artagnan had called his son, without suspecting that he, who was only at present a rather poor star in the heaven of royalty, would one day make that star his emblem, the messenger of Louis the Fourteenth. 
we say, quitted his post and purchased a bidet of the meanest appearance, one of those animals which an officer of the cavalry would never choose, for fear of being disgraced. Accepting the color, this new acquisition recalled to the mind of D'Artagnan the famous orange-colored horse, with which, or rather upon which, he had made his first appearance in the world. Truth to say, from the moment he crossed his new steed, it was no longer D'Artagnan who was traveling. It was a good man clothed in an iron-gray, justicol, brown eau de chose, holding the medium between a priest and a layman. That which brought him nearest to the churchman was that D'Artagnan had placed on his head a calotte of threadbare velvet, and over the calotte a large black hat, no more sword, a stick hung by a cord to his wrist, but to which he promised himself as an unexpected auxiliary to join upon occasion a good dagger ten inches long unconcealed under his cloak. The bidet purchased at Chaudbriand, complete with metamorphosis, it was called, or rather D'Artagnan called it, Fure, Ferret. If I have changed Jeffer into Fure, I must make some diminutive or other of my own name. So instead of D'Artagnan, I will be Agnan, short. That is a concession which I naturally owe to my gray coat, my round hat, and my rusty calotte. Monsieur d'Artagnan travelled then pretty easily upon Fouret, who ambled like a true butter-woman's pad, and who, with his amble, managed cheerfully upon twelve leagues a day, upon four spindle-shanks, of which the practised eye of d'Artagnan had appreciated the strength and safety beneath the thick mass of hair which covered them. Jogging along, the traveller took notes, studied the country which he traversed reserved and silent, ever seeking the most plausible pretext for reaching Belle-Ile-en-Mer and for seeing everything without arousing suspicion. In this manner, he was enabled to convince himself of the importance the events assumed in proportion as he drew near to it. In this remote country, in this ancient duchy of Bretagne, which was not France at that period, and is not even now so, the people knew nothing of the King of France. They not only did not know him, but were unwilling to know him. One face, a single one, floated visibly for them upon the political current, their ancient dukes no longer ruled them. Government was a void, nothing more. In place of the sovereign duke, the seigneur of the parishes reigned without control, and above the seigneur, God, who was never forgotten in Bretagne. Among these suzerains of Chateau and Belfries, the most powerful, the richest, the most popular, was Monsieur Fouquet, seigneur of Belle Isle. Even in the country, even within sight of that mysterious isle, legends and traditions consecrate its wonders. Every one might not penetrate it. The isle, of an extent of six leagues in length and six in breadth, was a seigneurial property, which the people had for a long time respected, covered, as it was, with the name of Retz, so redoubtable in the country. Shortly after the erection of the seigneury into a marquistat, Belle Isle passed to Monsieur Fouquet. The celebrity of the isle did not date from yesterday. Its name, or rather its qualification, is traced back to the remotest antiquity. The ancients call it Calunese, from two Greek words, signifying beautiful isle. Thus, at a distance of eighteen hundred years, it had borne, in another idiom, the same name it still bears. There was, then, something in itself in this property of Monsieur Fouquet, besides its position of six leagues off the coast of France, a position which makes it a sovereign in its maritime solitude, like a majestic ship which disdains roads, and proudly casts anchor in mid-ocean. 
D'Artagnan learnt of all this, without appearing the least in the world astonished. He also learned the best way to get intelligence was to go to La Roche-Bernard, a tolerably important city at the mouth of the Vélin. Perhaps there he could embark, if not crossing the salt marshes, he would repair the Grande or Le Croisie to wait for an opportunity to cross over to Belle Isle. He had discovered besides, since his departure from the Chaudbriand, that nothing would be impossible for it under the impulsion of Monsieur Agnan, and nothing to Monsieur Agnan through the initiative of Fouré. He prepared then to sup off a teal and a tortue in a hotel of La Roche-Bernard, and ordered to be brought from the cellar to wash down those two Breton dishes, some cider, which the moment it touched his lips he perceived to be more than Breton hit still. End of chapter 66